I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Thank you. I've been uh, looking forward to it. You know, there's something I've been meaning to ask you. Selling agents put together various reports and information memorandums for their available properties, and these often contain projected revenues based upon the property being fully lit or the likelihood of increased rentals upon review some time in the future. As a buyer, does this provide you with a sound basis for making a decision on whether to purchase the property? Yeah, look, I can understand how that can sometimes be confusing for for investors because those projections or they're some call sometimes called pro forma numbers and the Latin meaning of pro forma is pretend can give a distorted picture of what's happening. You see, smart investors always base their decisions on actual results. Now they may focus on recent trends, but they're looking at what the numbers are now. And what you find is vendors and their selling agents tend to downplay the past and the present and want to talk up the future. Now, using projections as your foundation creates two problems. The first one is if you buy based on those numbers, you're already ahead of the market. And what you've got to hope is that the conditions had better improve to meet the projections. And what if the market changes? What happens if there's a slight downturn? Then you've actually paid too much based on a vendor's jiggling of the figures, if you like. Now, the second problem is that you're actually rewarding the seller for something that he or she hasn't actually done yet. They could have raised the rents. They could have increased the occupancy or decreased the expenses but they haven't. And so they're really fobbing off that job onto you and wanting you to pay top dollar at the same time. Now, what you need to do is not take them on face value, is to actually look at what expenses might be involved in achieving those rents, assuming that that those projections are realistic. And you've got sort of letting up costs, fees, advertising... Plus, you've also got to allow for some sort of incentive, whether it's a rent-free period or a contribution to fit out or something like that. So, yeah, you've got to take them with a grain of salt. So could you quickly outline how you would recommend our listeners establish what a property is really worth? Well, basically, there are three principal methods for establishing value. The first one is what is generally called the direct comparison method. And what that does is take properties that are in the neighbouring area, ideally, but that are comparable in size and use with the property that you're trying to establish the value. Now, you tend to make the comparison on a per square metre of building. In other words assuming both properties are developed to their full capacity, how much is someone prepared to pay per square metre of lettable area? Now, if you've got a number of 
modular, similar type units. They might be factoryettes or they might be office suites. Well, then you might look at how much per suite or per unit itself, if they're all pretty much the same size in that particular development. But one of the problems you've got with the direct comparison method is that in your particular market, it may not contain enough properties similar to yours to allow you to make a proper comparison. And therefore, you need to start to interpret how or what adjustments need to be made from the properties you're using by way of evidence for the comparison to arrive back at yours. That starts to get into a a highly developed valuation skill, which most people don't have. Sometimes what you can do is to step outside the immediate geographic area and find properties that are at a wider radius from yours. The only problem, again, you have to watch is that there aren't local reasons why prices are either higher or lower than where they are in your particular location. And again, it really requires a trained valuer or someone who is working day-to-day in the acquisition or sale of commercial properties to make that quick interpretation as to whether they are legitimate comparable sales that you can apply to your particular property. So that's number one. Number two is the income method. Now, unlike residential property, which is established more by location, size and and the various other factors that most people understand, the value of a commercial property is really established by the cash flow that it generates. And, And that's ongoing cash flow and also the volume of the cash flow, the size, the amount. So what you need to quickly determine, and we sort of touched on that in in the previous question, is what is the true net operating income? And that means you've got to establish what the true rental is for the property and then subtract from that the realistic expenses to arrive at your net operating income. Now, in those expenses, we're not including interest. We're purely looking at assuming it's full equity purchase. And therefore, you establish your net operating income and you divide that by your capitalisation rate. Now, again, you get your capitalisation rate by looking at comparable properties. And again, we discussed this in an earlier podcast where your yield for retail properties is generally somewhere between five and or four and a half to five and a half to maybe six percent depending on the size and location for your office if it's smaller strata title you might be looking at about seven percent when it gets larger or standalone it might be eight eight and a quarter percent industrial property ranges somewhere between eight and a half to nine and a half maybe ten again depending on age location and so forth so what you need to do is to establish what is an appropriate capitalisation rate for your type of property, both in its use and also its location and its age. Now, again, having a good consulting team can quickly supply you with those sort of figures so that once you've got the true net operating income, you can then divide it by the appropriate capitalisation rate 
and that then gives you your likely value for the property. Now, is that the figure you should be paying? Probably not. All you've got is a good estimate. So if we look at the third method, which is the cost method, and it's probably the the least used method, but it does work reasonably well for brand new properties. And here what you do is you have property on a parcel of land, and generally it's not that difficult with new subdivisions of industrial land or building of offices to establish what the land is worth per square metre and therefore whatever size you have. And therefore, again, when the construction cost of a a building, those figures are generally readily available either through a quantity surveyor or, or just market intelligence. And then you obviously have to add on fees and uh, interest and so forth during the construction period, allow developers profit. But you can arrive at what is a realistic figure pretty much for a brand new property. It takes a bit of knowledge, but it you can do it. As I said, it's not the most common way to approach it. But what's really important ultimately is what does a valuer who is establishing the ultimate market price for a lender, what does he or she think the property is worth? And that's where I've said before with my clients, I get a valuer to tell me the figure up to which he's prepared to support. So it doesn't really matter what calculations I do using one of the three methods. The ultimate arbiter is going to be the valuer, not the bank, not the lender, they defer to the valuer. So in establishing value by yourself, what you are really doing is just getting into the ballpark to decide whether or not it's something you could possibly afford. But before you go making any offers, it's really what the valuer says is the maximum he would support or she would support. And that's what you need to have in place before you go and start your negotiations. Are there any other factors you need to consider? Yeah, look, there are some other factors and perhaps just walk away from the specific buildings for the moment and just talk generally. Obviously, location's important. I mean, you've heard it said the three most important things are location, position and where it is. And it's not wrong. It's important. It's probably not the most important. It's no good having the best located property that's unlettable. So, yeah, location's important and you need to you need to consider it. So, you know, for things like shops, for example, sometimes where they're located as far as the sun's concerned is, is important because you have an AM side and a PM side depending of also which way the traffic's flowing. You know, so, I mean, for example, most coffee shops are best located on the AM side on the way to work, whereas a dry cleaner is better located on the PM side being the way on the way home because you're more likely to drop your dry cleaning off then or pick it up on the way home. So little things like that. But, you know, and shops and office buildings or shopping centres and office buildings generally want to be near major road arterial or 
railway stations or something like that so that you can often, you know, gauge as to their success. But each commercial property type really has its own profile for what a best location is to ensure that it gets maximum exposure to its particular target market. So, you know, you've got to look at those sort of things to ensure that you do have the right spot for it. I mean, things come down to good demographics. I mean, often you see those two black strips across the road, someone's doing a traffic count, and a lot of businesses want to establish that the demographics are right for them. So also up-and-coming areas. Now, if you go into a, an area where buildings are being older buildings being pulled down and new ones built or they're refurbing existing buildings, you then know this is an area that's being revitalised. But you need to be careful that you go into that neighbourhood only after a couple of other investors have committed to those sort of projects. You don't want to be a pioneer in these situations. I mean, it's good to be first, but not the first. You get in early you know, on the ground floor, but not before the first one is done and proven. So that's important. Your expenses are something that you, you want to look at because sometimes the expenses for a building can be above the normal for what they should be. You know, it's, it's hard to, to gauge, but generally, apart from the rent, with the retail, you know, the tenant pays those outgoings. Generally, they're about 20% on top of what the rent is. And you've got to keep them under control. And, and even though the tenant may be paying them, and retail tenant will pay all but the land tax in, in most states, having them out of control is not going to help you because the tenant looks at total occupancy costs, rent and outgoings. So if the outgoings are too high then obviously they're going to pay less rent when it comes to a rent review because it's the total package. And likewise, with with an office building, generally for strata title offices, the outgoings generally will range between somewhere between 20 and 30% of the rent. Now, on a per square metre basis, you're looking at probably... It depends again on size, but you're probably looking at thirty to forty dollars a square metre. Now, when you get into a larger office building, they can get up closer to fifty dollars a square metre for a multi-storey building. So you need to keep these under control. And sometimes, as far as rates and things like that are concerned. You have an opportunity every four years when a revaluation takes place to challenge the valuation, but equally, your managing agent should take charge of those outgoings and get them requoted. Things like insurance, maintenance, air conditioning contracts, as and when they come up, so that you can ensure that they are kept spot on as far as the actual expenses are concerned, because. As I said, it's the total occupancy cost that a, a tenant looks at and if that is getting out of control, well then, yeah, they might pay it for a while, but when the lease renewal comes up, 
you're wanting a higher rent, they won't be prepared to pay it, they may well decide not to exercise their option. And so it's in your interest to keep those expenses down, even though you're not actually paying for them out of your pocket. Another thing that you need to look at are the leases. And there's two aspects here. One is what type of lease, whether it's a gross or a net lease, because as we said, a net lease, the tenant pays the outgoings. A gross lease means you get rent and out of that you have to pay the outgoings. So you don't know what your bottom line is until the end of the year. So that's important. But also, as far as with the lease, the credit worthiness of the tenant is important. So that when you're purchasing it, sure, the lease looks good, might be a good long lease, but you need to probe a little deeper to find out how strong your your tenant is so that you don't find yourself caught halfway through the lease with the tenant either going bust or walking away for whatever reason and not having appropriate recourse. So part of that is having a look at the security behind the lease is the the creditworthiness, but also personal guarantees now are not much use because if the directors are smart, they've got all the assets in their partner's or spouse's name, so you're not going to have much recourse there. What you really need to look at is things like a security bond or deposit bank guarantee. I would suggest you need, if it's a smaller property, maybe three months is sufficient. If it's starting to get slightly larger, I wouldn't go less than six. Ideally, you want to go for a 12-month bank guarantee. So that means even if the tenant does go bust, you have ample time to find another tenant, cover the costs of the advertising, and also grant the new tenant a rent-free period, all within that bank guarantee of six to 12 months. So I think that's important. Any final suggestions? Yeah, I think one of the things that most people tend to overlook is your cash reserves that might be required for the property. Now, irrespective of what age or or condition the property is in, as a minimum you need to have, in my view, cash reserves of at least two, maybe three months interest coverage. So in other words, if for whatever reason the tenants or tenant doesn't pay the rent for a couple of months, you can still pay your interest charges and any outgoings that occur during those two months. Now, I'm not saying you anticipate that's going to happen, but you just you need that as a comfort so you can sleep at night. Now, other than that, you need to look at, depending on the age of the building, if it's pretty much brand new, you won't need much cash reserves. If it's getting a little older, what you need to do is to establish what's called a preventative maintenance program where you anticipate, with expert advice, what things are likely to be needing replacement over the next five years, and you start to do those things progressively so that if you do it as a preventative maintenance program on, a, on an annual basis, you then start to address things before they become a major problem because we're trying to keep your expenses as deductible. Now, these may be these are things outside what the tenant is required to pay. We're talking about ultimately improvements to the property. So we're adding value as far as you're concerned. But 
if you do them progressively, there's a better than even chance you're going to get them as deductible. If you wait until something breaks down and have to replace it, it then becomes a capital item. As we've discussed before, that you can certainly depreciate that, but you've got to do that then over a five-year period or longer, other than if you do it as a preventive maintenance, you can generally have it deductible in its entirety in the year in which the expense is incurred. So, again, if you've got sufficient rent to cover that, that's fine. But make these projections forward as to what your your cash flow is going to be. And at the outset, my suggestion would be to put aside some cash reserves so that you know you've got this covered. And it's particularly useful to undertake these sort of things as you get closer to the end of a lease where the tenant's going to exercise an option. Because a lot of landlords just ignore that, try and milk the property for what it's worth, and in the last two months suddenly have a flurry of activity spending money to make the tenant feel good. They're not dill. I mean, they know that the only reason you spent the money is so they're going to exercise the option. But if you do it progressively, so they can see you there on a, or your tradespeople there on a regular basis, they feel this is a property that's loved, they have a landlord that cares, and therefore they want to stay there as a tenant. So I think if you take all that into account, you're going to have a very worthwhile and successful investment. The aspect of assessing a property's true value has always been a mystery to me. So what you cover today has really been a help, as I'm sure it was for our listeners as well. Look, Thanks, Chris, and I'll look forward to next week. And uh, me too.